Ladies and gentlemen, our second guest, as a small girl, she had to put up with the accusation of being a bit bossy. And today, Last week in Davos, Switzerland, Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg gave this talk. Hi. Hi, Sheryl. I don't think I've ever done a standing interview before. <laughs> yeah, well. Here we are. A German um, journalist is asking so the questions here. Thank you so much. While they spoke, a crowd of guys in suits, I and I mean a lot of guys in suits, they all pressed against each other and held up their cell phones like they were at a Beyonce concert. Mostly, Sandberg wanted to talk about how Facebook is in the middle of a grand evolution. Will we recognize Facebook once you're done with the makeover, or is it going to be a whole different company? We didn't anticipate all the risks that came from connecting so many people. After a year of coming under fire for privacy violations and data leaks, her tone was conciliatory. You know, we know we need to earn back trust. And so from everything from election integrity to fake news on our platform to getting the right content up, we're taking a much more rigorous approach. And I think it's really important. But there was this one moment that stood out where Sandberg started defending the way Facebook makes money. What we do is we use information to show relevant ads. So we're showing you things you might be interested in. And where that's really important is for small business. She gave this example about a woman she met in Dublin who uses Facebook to advertise her dog hotel. She's a small business. She can't buy broad-based TV or billboards. She couldn't even afford to advertise to all of Dublin. But she can advertise on us and show her ad to dog lovers. Now, we do that by taking the ad and showing it to them. We don't pass back any information to her. I think it's so critical to the small business growth we see, but also to providing a product for free around the world. You know, there are 2.6 billion people using our products and services. And that's because advertising gives us a free product. And we think that's really important. This moment stood out because at the same time Sandberg was talking about the way Facebook is thriving, hundreds of journalists in the U.S. were being laid off. The way Facebook makes money used to be the way newspapers make money. The layoffs seemed to say, there's not enough money for the both of us. Of course, Sheryl Sandberg has heard this before. And I think if you look back to other technologies, you actually see a similar pattern. So if you look everything from the printing press to the railroads to TV, what you see is an initial phase of, oh my God, this is amazing, and all of these things it enables, followed by people really worried about the harms, followed by a period that's more reflective and learning, where I think new rules are written. We're in that phase right now where the fundamental rules are getting rewritten. And this is where governments come in because they have an obligation and a duty to set law. But it's also where civil society, civil rights groups, newspapers, people, the technology industry ourselves, I think we're in that phase of rewriting the rules and figuring out what they're going to be. But if Sheryl Sandberg's right, if we are in this transformational moment, who's writing the new rules? And what rules should we all be fighting for? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Today, I'm going to talk to Slate's Will Aramis about this rough week in journalism and what tech has to do with it. And maybe, just maybe, how tech could try to solve it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I am in my Facebook feed right now and I have stories from Slate often at the top of my feed because I work at Slate and I, I click on my colleagues' work and so Facebook has learned that one way to keep me coming back to Facebook is show me a bunch of Slate stuff at the top of my feed. In case it's not obvious yet, Will Ramis is Slate's senior technology writer. Here I am at the the very top story in my feed is, oh, it's actually uh, Slate.com shared a link to the group Slate Parenting. I can click on that. I can go to the Slate Parenting group. I can click on the Slate story. But in actuality, what I do, because I'm browsing Facebook right now, not reading Slate, is I scroll down. And the next thing I see is an ad for Netflix. It's an autoplay video ad for a show called Polar that's coming exclusively to Netflix. Below that, there's a link to another Slate story and below that, a New Yorker story. But the only person making money as I scroll through here is Facebook. They're making a bunch of money because Netflix paid them a pile to post this video ad for the show Polar. And so uh, Facebook gets paid, Slate does not get paid, The New Yorker does not get paid. That's sort of the, the, the fundamental problem for media companies. When this first started though, not everyone saw it as a problem. A company like BuzzFeed looked at content going viral and spreading on social media, and they said, we can do that. And they said, let's take advantage of the fact that there are new ways that people are getting their news. People are not just getting their news from one paper or one website anymore. They're getting their news through all these other avenues, Google and Facebook and emails that people send to each other and Gchats that people send to each other and Reddit. And let's build a news, a news organization that is premised on the idea that that is how people get their news. It was an opportunity for them. It was, here's how we circumvent the monopoly that traditional media has had. Uh, and, and here's how we reach people in new ways and fresh ways. And we kind of meet readers where they already are rather than fighting this battle of trying to convince them to, to buy our paper or come to our homepage. So with BuzzFeed sort of laying off 15% of its staff, are you then saying, like, this just shows how ineffective this idea is? Well, I want to I be a little careful because there is a tendency to overreact, right? I mean, maybe this is the beginning of the end for BuzzFeed. Maybe these 15% cuts are just the first round of layoffs, and there'll be more and more until BuzzFeed is just a, a shell of itself, and there's, a, there's memory and nostalgia around it. But maybe not. Yeah, there's, a funny, there's been a funny turnabout here because, you know, four years ago or so, the New York Times was going through a, a few rounds of layoffs, and they were really struggling, and people were saying, oh, the Times is, you know, the Times is dying. And then the example that people held up uh, was BuzzFeed. They, but look, BuzzFeed points the way to the future. I mean, these are the guys who are doing it right. They understand that you have to be able to put your journalism on Facebook. You have to put it on Snapchat. You know, you have to go where the people are and, and master the arts of virality. And, and that's really the way things are going. And, and yes, it may be gloomy over at the New York Times, but the future is bright at BuzzFeed. <laughs> Now, four years later, BuzzFeed's having layoffs and everybody's saying, well, but the New York Times is doing great. You know, why can't you know, everybody should be more like the New York Times? Look, they've got a paywall and their their subscription base is growing. So that's the future. I mean, it's I don't know. It's kind of it's it's kind of funny in a dark way. But these layoffs over the last week, they weren't just about BuzzFeed. Journalists were laid off at the Gannett newspapers at Huffington Post. 
all of these outlets became dependent on big tech to get eyes on their stories. So Facebook has has stepped back from the news a bit in the past year or two, partly under public pressure. I mean, everybody said, Facebook, you're ruining the news. You're screwing up our democracy. You're you're compromising elections. Get out of this, you know, get out of this business. So Facebook has stepped stepped back and that has created a vacuum. And, and one of the biggest replacements has just been more people using Google, more people using Google search and Google news. There are others that have that have stepped in. Um, more people are getting news through Flipboard, you know, a, a really nice app on the iPhone. Um, a few more people are getting news through Twitter. And Snapchat is a place where people are getting news. And yes, Apple News is potentially a big one. And it's interesting because it is it is curated in this very different way from Facebook. Facebook was like, well, whatever people share, that's what other people will see in their feeds. Apple said, no, 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 we're going to do this more like an old school media business. When you open Apple News, we want you to see stuff that human editors have decided is important and is worthwhile and is good journalism and it's not fake news. And so in that sense, Apple News is a really nice development. There's just one hitch, which is that nobody seems to be making any money on Apple News except uh, you know, maybe Apple's making money from from keeping people loyal to their ecosystem. But the publishers are not seeing returns from Apple News the way they did from Facebook before. So I wanted to spin through a few solutions that like I've seen out there and just sort of get your feeling on them. Like I've heard people talk about, well, we just need to shame people into funding journalism, shame these big tech companies into doing this. And you kind of do see, as you said, you know, Apple News is using human editors to, you know, edit their news stream. You see someone like Jeff Bezos, big tech guru, buying the Washington Post. Do you think there's any sort of hope that that would drive this bus in a better direction? At the margins, maybe. I mean, when I think about shaming companies into into subsidizing the news, I don't think about Bezos buying the Washington Post. I would put that more in in the bucket of what has been a, a very classic media model for a long time, which is that rich people like to also be powerful, like to also have influence over the news. They feel good about being media magnets in addition to whatever else they are. And so Bezos, I think, is more just like you know, rich guy buys news outlet, outlet, which from time immemorial has been has been part of journalism. Um, but Facebook and Google are donating money to nonprofits that are trying to work out new models for the news. Um, that money is is it's not nothing. I don't want to I don't want to poo poo it because they're sending tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to worthy organizations that are that are trying to build new things that can that can work in this kind of post print world. But it's it's marginal. I mean, it's not that that's not going to unbreak the the old model in which media publishers had local monopolies over over advertising. I kind of wonder, like, what would happen if places like The New York Times and The Washington Post just did a blackout? We're like, we're not participating in Twitter. We're not participating in Facebook. And you'll have to come to us to get this information. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they sort of have done a, a version of that, right? I mean, with the, the paywall, like when uh, five years ago, six years ago, when the Wall Street Journal had a paywall and they were making it work, but everybody said, well, that's because you have all the rich people as your audience. Um, doesn't mean it'll work for anybody else. Then the New York Times tried it and it, it, it worked for the New York Times. Um, and now the Washington Post has it. And so that's, that is one positive development 
I mean, one of the big problems with the internet for the media was that we all just started giving away all the content for free uh, and assuming that that ads on the websites would would subsidize it and then it turned out they didn't. So so that's one positive development. And what I think what you're talking about now is the is the idea could they go even further and say we're not going to let uh Google put our stories in search results or we're not going to let Facebook put our stories in their in their news feed um and we'll see what happens to them. Well, I don't think that's a very good idea <laughs> because no nobody's going to stop using Google or Facebook just because they they can't get the New York Times in there. Uh, they re- they use it for all sorts of other reasons as well. And in fact, this was tried um, maybe about let's see, six years ago or so in Germany. Axel Springer, which was one of the largest German publishers, said they were going to boycott Google or Google News, and they, they would no longer allow their stories to appear there. Google said, "Oh, sure, fine." You know, a year or so later, Axel Springer was like, "Oh crap, nobody's reading our stuff anymore. We're on the verge of irrelevance," and so they they walked that back. Huh. That's interesting. Well, so then I mean. It really only leaves us with one thing, which is government intervention. And, you know, I really wonder, is there any indication that the federal government will get involved to sort of rein in some of this out of control uh, leech of advertising money to publishers who aren't quite publishers? Yeah, so that's an idea I've seen is that you, you shouldn't be able to both be an advertising conglomerate as Facebook and Google are and also be sort of the, the common carrier, the, the, de, the de facto uh, search index for the entire web or the de facto homepage for the entire social web as Google and Facebook also are. That's kind of a, a radical idea that I think is it's interesting and worth talking about. I mean, I watched all the hearings, all the congressional hearings last year with the tech companies. That that kind of stuff, that's that kind of idea is about maybe cracking open the Overton window a bit, right? And and let's expand the conversation. But in terms of realism, I don't I don't see any appetite uh, from politicians to to go that far. Um, but there there are there are models. I mean, not to not to go off on a tangent here, but I, I think there are ideas out there for business models in journalism that are still worth exploring that don't require the government to step in and, and, you know, break up Facebook or Google. There are ideas like, you know, what about sort of a Netflix for news is one that's been floated. Like what if you paid a certain, what if, you know, all the sites you want to read put up a paywall, but then you could pay one monthly subscription fee and get a bundle of, you know, a hundred or 500 or a thousand of, of sites that you might be interested in. And you could read all those. You could get through all their paywalls with, with one subscription and then they would share the revenues. Maybe that would help somehow. Maybe you could do micro payments where like all the publishers, again, all of these are, are pretty much preconditioned on the idea that there's a paywall that you, that at some point you have to pay for news online. Once those paywalls are up across the web, then maybe you can get in to read a specific story from a publisher for a quarter, or if it's a really long story, maybe you pay a dollar or two dollars, and you have some account where it just it you know withdraws this this fractional amount from your account each time you read a story from a, a publisher who you don't subscribe to. I think those are ideas that have have been kicked around for a long time. Obviously, they haven't saved journalism so far, but it doesn't mean that they <laughs> that they couldn't doesn't mean they couldn't be workable in the future. I mean, sometimes you really have to bottom out before some of these ideas start to look like they're worth trying. Will, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Will Aramis is a senior technology writer at Slate. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we go, if you're like me, over the last few days, you have gone way deep into the Roger Stone rabbit hole. You know about the Nixon tattoo. You have heard about the Godfather references. You may also know that today, Roger Stone is going to be in a Washington courthouse, getting arraigned on charges of witness tampering and obstruction. To keep count, this is the sixth Trump associate to be charged in the Mueller investigation. With every filing that Mueller has released, we've got a very big picture emerging. I asked Slate's Dahlia Lithwick to put all these indictments in a little context for me. She told me that each new charge is part of what she calls the living, breathing Mueller report. I say it only to caution people against thinking there's going to be this magical, you know, jack-in-the-box moment where we find out the whole entire thing. Pay attention to what we already know. Pay attention to what's coming out from the Southern District of New York. Pay attention to what's coming out in the day-to-day-to-day accretion of information. Because it might be all we get? Well, because it's a big part of the story. Even if you and I never get to read the final report, these moments are already unprecedented. And Dahlia says each indictment is another legal chess move. And each new charge brings Mueller closer to checkmate. It cannot be the case that the president is above the law. And if he cannot be indicted and we cannot know things, then impeachment is the only remedy. And Trump defenders say this structurally, right? When they say the president can't be indicted, they say because the only thing that you can do is impeach a sitting president. If you're closing this door, you can't close the other. And that means impeachment is on the table and that means Congress gets access. Side note before we go, my favorite Roger Stone fact is that he was apparently a fan of the rap duo Mob Deep. Just remember, Roger, there ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. And that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. Our supervising producer is Mary Wilson. Our senior producer is Jason DeLeon. And our brand new assistant producer is Anna Martin. Welcome to the team, Anna. Shout out to all of our new listeners from Stitcher who picked up What Next as a featured show this week. So sweet of you guys to do that. Thanks. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. You can see pictures of the whole crew of us over on Instagram. That's What Next Pod. Talk to you tomorrow. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.